And now as people of the book of God, let's take that book. Let's open it to the portion marked Hebrews. Chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. You follow along as I begin reading this morning in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. Shall we pray together this morning? Father God in heaven, have, we pray, the watch care over the words that are spoken from this pulpit today have a care over the hearts and minds of your people who hear the words that are spoken today and have a care for us Lord as a church body as a local body here that you would grow us this day how rich are the truths of who we are in you Lord Jesus how wonderful it is to have our great high priest interceding and bringing us into the presence of God. Let us now, Lord, live in that presence. We pray your help with these things. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As we've been looking through chapter 10, we've been seeing the accomplishments of the new covenant, particularly the accomplishments of God, and the accomplishments of God through Christ Jesus and his accomplishments. And now we've seen that there's a new and living way in which we might draw near unto God, having assurance, confidence that we may draw near to God, having a confession that we hold fast, a hope that we cling to with assurance. We have both our heart leaning and drawing near to God and our mind and our mouth confessing those things that our mind has now come to believe by faith. But this morning, we're going to look at consideration. As I told you before, when we entered into verses 22 through 25, that there are three positive commands, two of which we've looked at, and one negative command that waits for us next Sunday. But today we have to finish our three C's, the confidence that draws near, the confession of hope, and then this morning let us have consideration for one another. Well, consideration. How do we introduce this? Well, I ask you this question. It's a question that you may have been asked over the years of your life, usually the question comes with a particular tone of delivery. Having been married now for over 30 years, I've come to be a little more sensitive to the use of my voice and its intonations. Learning that tone seems to carry some sort of meaning. Can I have an amen? So I ask you, what are you looking at? Just what are you looking at? Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? See, there's a tone. Bada boom, bada bang over here. Usually when people ask, are you looking at me? It means they really don't want you looking at them. Am I right? That's what the tone seems to say. Look somewhere else. Well, now we're going to fix that. According to the word of God. Verse 24, Hebrews chapter 10. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So you want to know who am I looking at? I'm looking at you. If you want to know who you should be looking at, you should be looking at me. If you want to further know where you should be looking, you should be looking at each other. So what are you looking at? And what are you looking for? Let us have consideration for one another. Consider one another. To consider. We've seen this word in Hebrews before. We saw it in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. And we also saw it in Hebrews 7 verse 4. And in each of these times, we were called upon to consider not ourselves, not one another, but we were called on to consider Jesus Christ in this particular way and wise, look at Hebrews 3, verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, the writer of Hebrews now says, consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So who are we supposed to look at? The high priest an apostle of our confession, Jesus the Christ. Verse 2 says, Who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. As Moses was faithful, Jesus was even more faithful, and we are to consider the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as a sent one of God and as a high priest that brings men to God as the Christ the Deliverer, the Anointed One of Israel, he who is named is Jesus. Think on him, look at him, observe him. Those with consideration and who consider have developed three practices. The practices of considering is what we're about. To consider Jesus Christ, we all understand that we should be looking at him. But what does that mean when now we're to look at each other? The practice of considering one another. The first practice. The practice of considering one another. To consider. Let's look at that word in English. It is very powerful also in the Hebrew. Very similar in our understandings from one lexicon to the other dictionary. It means to pay careful attention to. Who are you looking at? I'm looking at you. I'm paying careful attention to you. You're paying careful attention to me. Paying careful attention to one another. It also means to sharpen or to look sharply. This is more than a glance. This is more than just a passing look as we go by. This is to look very closely, to observe and consider what it is that we see. What are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at you. To have, if you will, a discerning eye. A discerning eye means an eye that can weigh right and wrong, good and evil, right, wrong, righteousness, unrighteousness, a discerning eye toward your brethren. We see this word in context used by Jesus himself when he asks as well us to consider things we already know and see as a regular practice of life. As he's teaching his disciples, as he's teaching us in the book of Luke, Luke records these words of Jesus in Luke 12, 24, Jesus says, consider. Jesus says, consider the ravens. I saw a raven just today. He was by the side of the road. He flew up suddenly, and he wanted to get back to that same place in the road. And as I considered the raven, I postulated that I might understand and know what it is that he was about. And since he didn't just fly off haphazardly, but circled back around to where he had taken off from, I am then in my consideration, having watched ravens quite often, 
assumed that he was returning to whatever carrion, whatever dead thing or food source was by the side of the road that our approaching vehicle moved him from, and he's going back there to do what ravens do. And ravens eat from the hand of God. Didn't you know that? Listen to Jesus. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns. Did you realize that? The ravens don't all gather someplace and go to the refrigerator. Man, there's nothing by the side of the road today, honey. You got one of them roasts in there we can maybe cook up for dinner? No, they neither sow nor reap. They neither plant in preparation. They don't harvest in preparation. They don't stare, store things up in preparation. And God feeds them. Do you ever consider that? God feeds them, Jesus says. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Think about this. Look at this. We're to learn from what we see. How do they make it through the winter? They stay here the whole time, and God feeds them. Sometimes with your bumper. Sometimes <laughs> he also feeds the guy down at the body shop. <laughs> at the same time, I'm just saying, what are you looking at? Luke 12, verse 27, if you skip down there, the word occurs again. Consider the lilies. Consider the lilies. Ah, I don't do that. I'm a guy. Well, you need to start doing that. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't say, well, I sure hope it rains tomorrow. They don't say, well, it's rained too much. They don't say, I wonder what I'm going to do to get through this. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Consider, what are you looking at? What do you see when you look? It is a spiritual awareness that Jesus is calling on us to observe that even in the commonalities of life, we see the hand and provision of God. We see that his promises are carried forth to feed the animals, to feed the birds, to take care of the grass of the field and the flowers. He's also in the same book of Luke call, called on us to consider one another, but in a certain way, he says, when you... Consider your brothers and sisters and see that your brother has, has, well, a moat in his eye, as the old king calls it. He has a sliver in his eye. He says, consider. He says, do you not consider the plank in your own eye? So as you are considering your brothers and sisters, there's also supposed to be a, a balancing and even more hardy and sharper view that we use of our own selves in our consideration. Ooh, we wonder now, what are you looking at? And what are you looking for? Our word from the book of Hebrews is a command. Let us consider. Doesn't mean let us get around to it. Means let us consider and keep on considering in the present tense this is to be a process that is ongoing. Not one look, one time, one day. No, but a process of observation. But I ask you, what is it that when we do consider one another within the church body, what do we most often look most closely to find? If we're really going to be honest, I mean, I know it's Sunday and we're all dressed up and ready and we're we're acting Sunday and we're dressing Sunday and all those kinds of things. But when we consider each other, even on Sundays and even when we gather together, isn't it easy to do this kind of observation? To find, if you will, the mistakes that one another makes, the slips of the tongue that we make, the problems that we create, the character flaws which we see. What are you looking at? I'm looking at you. 
character flaws, which, if we're honest, sometimes merely translate into this, how someone else is different from me. Not necessarily wrong, just different. Different talents, different gifts, different ways. And you and your observations not noticed yet, you're all different. And some of you, I'm just saying, see how easy it is? Rather, we need to consider, rather we need to zero in, we need to have a special attention paid to the whole of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this text is calling for. Consider the whole of them. Not incidences isolated, but rather patterns of life observed. We need to observe them in their patterns of their spiritual condition. What is our brother or our sister's spiritual strength? What is our brother and sister's spiritual weaknesses? What are our brothers and sisters' potentialities? Potentials for growth. Potentials for maturity. Potentials for service. Are we looking for what they might become rather than pointing out what they have yet to grow in? The point of this commandment is to develop a keen understanding of your brothers and sisters as individuals so that, with a purpose, so that you may help, so that you may be of spiritual help to their spiritual growth. What are you looking at? What are you looking for? Well, I proclaim to you, Hebrews is demanding that we see life as brothers and sisters as life under the microscope. Isn't that just what you wanted? I mean, what are you looking at? There you are. Here I am. There it is. The command to notice. The practice first of considering one another. And then those who consider also have the practice of stirring up one another. First we need to consider to know what we're looking at. To have noticed not just individual flaws, but ongoing practices. Some that may need correction and help, but also ongoing patterns of goodness and strength as well as weakness. The practice then of stirring up one another. Let's read our verse again, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another. Not just to categorize and keep a list of our own, but with a purpose. And here's the purpose. In order to stir up. In order to stir up. In order. What are you looking at me for? in order to stir you up. The New King James Version uses the translation of this Greek word to stir up. The, the NASB, the New American Standard Translation, uses this word to translate the Greek. It uses the word, English word to stimulate. Now, I just can't help but bring this into my agricultural environment, having just recently set up a nice piece of equipment that comes with the modern age of electricity and animal husbandry. It's called the hot wire fence. To keep my colts and my mares where I want them, away from the stallion, we now have a nice hot rope. You can touch it if you want to, but it'll be mighty stimulating. It will force you to react. A stimulation. Don't go this way. Stay in where you are. That's the New American Standard. The King James Version. To provoke. To provoke. My goodness, I thought this was a positive command. It is. But provoking can have a negative and a positive, can't it? 
to provoke away from where you shouldn't be, like the stimulating electric fence, or to prod where you should be in the right direction. As God said to the Apostle Paul when he was named Saul, he said to him, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? The goads were behind the oxen that if they pulled back in the yoke, the pointed sticks behind them that were attached would give them a little prick, if you will, in the nether regions and encourage them to keep up and not fall behind their compatriot to provoke. The NIV says to spur. The New International Version says to spur on. And of course, you know where this brings me in the world of horsemanship. I know what spurs are for. They are a tool, but they are a tool of stimulation and even at times of correction. Sometimes they are used to help get past a fear. Other times they are used to correct a rebellion against the one who is leading. Yeah, get up there now. Oh, I'll give you a little help. Very stimulating. It stirs up actions. This is exactly what the Bible is teaching us that we are to do with one another. If we are to consider one another, we are to notice very carefully, and then we are to stir up, to stimulate. The implication is to motivate or change any attitude or action that is restrictive of their path to godliness or spiritual growth. This in some ways means to get behind them and give a push. A push. But the key is to get behind them and not to get in their way. See, if you notice error or correction and you just stand in front of them, shaking your forefinger at them, you are actually stopping their progress, not helping. But if you come alongside, you may encourage them along the way with you. And if you get behind them, then you can support their uphill travel in the right direction. That's what this is about. May I come off the farm and ranch for a moment and go to the grocery store? I don't mean the grocery store where you shop. I mean the grocery store where I used to work. It was very interesting for me to take that job at an older age of life and to have employees younger than me and also superiors and bosses younger than me throughout the entirety of the business. Now, as I considered fellow employees and considered my bosses, my superiors, I had a choice. Should I be the one that points out everything I see wrong? Shall I be the cop of the produce department? I learned to train myself to do what we are to do in the church. And that was to ask myself, how can I help them be better at what they're doing? It's one thing to complain about something's wrong and do nothing about it to help, because that, of course, doesn't help. What are you looking at? Why are you looking at me? Is it to help? And how will you help? How can I help a, a fellow employee be a better employee than they already are? Oftentimes it's just that no one has ever trained them to do well and do good. Someone has to encourage them and someone has to show them and someone has to take the time to do that. And you oftentimes have to ask permission for I was superior to no one. So I must ask permission. I wasn't pastor there. 
I was employee number whatever it was. Just another link in the chain. Say things like, can I show you something? Can I show you a trick I learned? And then to my superiors, how do I help a superior? How do you help a pastor? How do you help a deacon? How do you help an elder in the church? How do you help your husband? <laughs> how do you help your wife? Little sister, how do you help your big sister? I'm looking at you. What are you looking at? Little brother, bigger brother, vice versa. How do you help them get better? From the inferior to the superior, I came up with this. I would go and say their name and say, may I be permitted to give you a bit of advice? Or may I have the opportunity to present you an idea I've been thinking on? And then if they say no, I don't. I wait. Wives, think about this when you want your husband to do something. He is your head. You must treat him as your head. That little two-bit uh, questions I've given you there are respectful, and they help leave responsibility in place. I wasn't the boss. She doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to hear it. They don't have to. But if they're willing to, then I can help. Then I can encourage them. Husbands to your wives, from inferior to, if you will, superior to inferior. Did I just say that in church about men and women? Yeah, I did. I didn't make it up. God said head, so do I. You also need to be loving and caring. And you can ask for permission too. Can I share something with you? Can I show you something that I learned? It's amazing if we ask permission, the doors that it opens. But when we point fingers and we nag, we put our beady eyes on them in judgment. Then they say something like, what are you looking at? I'm just saying. Those are my lessons from the grocery store. And it was fabulous work. The practice of stirring up one another, spurring one another along, has two spheres that are presented to us in this verse. Two spheres in which we are called upon to spur on or stir up each other. First is the sphere, the realm, if you will, of the heart. Of the heart. Notice what our text says. Let us consider one another in order to stir up what? Love. Well, that should be easy, right? Stir up Love. What this means in essence is primarily Christian love. Well, we all know what that is, right? Well, if we did, there would be no trouble in any churches. There would be no trouble in any families. There would be no trouble with any Christian brothers and sisters. So I think we maybe need to study it. Primarily Christian love, which also goes to the area of devotion. Can't help but go back into my uh, songology from the days of my youth, Australian singer, speaking about devotion. Hopelessly devoted to you, she sang. Olivia Newton John. Hopelessly devoted. So completely in devotion, it's no, there's no way out of it. That works pretty well for Christian love. But it's more than even that. It is a willful love, not just stuck in the love, 
unable to get out of the love, but a decision to love. The very word agape love means to express a kind of love that you've decided. You make this decision as a Christian. You say, every other brother and sister in Christ, I will love. I will love them as God would have me love them, as God loved me. The sphere of the heart to stir up that kind of love in one another. And it takes lessons. And I had to cut back from using the book of John and the book of 1 John. And then I had to cut back of using everything on love in 1 John. And so I'm just going to use 1 John chapter 3 and just a bit here to give us a lesson in love. And by the way, 1 John was written for this purpose. It was written as a litmus test. A litmus test for Christianity or non-Christianity. If the paper turns red, Christian. If the paper turns blue, not a Christian. If you want to know if you're a Christian, read 1 John and see which one you are described as. Consider yourself as you read 1 John. And what you will find in this consideration is either the presence or absence of brotherly love. Love for fellow brothers and, and sisters. Look at 1 John chapter 3 now, if you would, verse 14. Here's something we can know. We can know that we have passed from death to life. Wouldn't you like to know that? How can I know I have passed from death and hell's punishment for eternity unto life eternal in Christ. How can I know that? Well, reading verse 14. Here it is. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. What are you looking at? I'm looking at you, brother. I'm looking at you, sister. Does it bother you that I call you brother and sister all the time? Do you realize I trained myself to do that? When I write to you, I call you brother or sister when I write. Why do I do that? Oh, pastor, we thought you were a throwback to one of those churches, you know, in the South. You always use the brother this, the brother that, the sister this, the sister that. No, I do it because you're my brother and sister in Christ. I want you to know it, and I want me to know it. So that we consider one another as brothers and sisters in the same family, on the same footing, in the same position, because God put us here, and you don't get to pick your relatives. God picked you for me, and me for you, you know you've passed from death to life if we love each other. If you love the brethren, he who does not love his brother, listen, abides in death. Red or blue. Life or death. In or out. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother, listen, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hate and murder are there equated. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Ooh, are you ready? Is there a seatbelt in those pews? Buckle up. Here it is. By this we know Love, because he laid down his life for us and, listen, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What are you looking at? What? I'm looking at you to stir up love that lays down your life. How far have you gone in loving your brother? How far have you gone in loving your sister? How far have you gone in loving your wife? How far have you gone in loving your husband? How far have you gone in loving your own siblings and your own family? How far have you gone in church? Have you gone to death? The sacrifice of everything? I've decided I don't need another day of life. I will die today for you. 
Uh, what are you looking at, Pastor? Well, I'm looking at us. And now we're considering one another in order to stir up love. Not murder. I held verse 10 through 12 back to make this point. Let me just read it. It makes its own point in our consideration. Verse 10 of chapter 3, 1 John, In this the children of God, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. That's the choice. And now they're seen, made evident, so you can consider them. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What was it that Jesus said in the book of John? This commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. How will they know that you are mine? Because you love one another unto death. The only parting of you and your brothers and sisters in Christ is death. When you die for them. Notice the example, not as Cain, verse 12. We go all the way back to the garden of, or outside the garden of Eden with Cain, the brother of Abel, these first sons of Adam and Eve, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. What are you looking at? Dead. That's why he would say this in verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 17, what does this love look like? Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or tongue. Oh, love you, man. Love you, babe. Love you, dude. Let us not just love in word, in the tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love abides and is made evident in deeds that we can and are able to consider in great detail. This text is calling on us in the church. It's pointing out that we need people. We need brothers and sisters who are dedicated to teaching one another how to love. How to really love these types of groups of people. Like this group, the immature Christian. You know what immature Christians do? Immature Christian things. They act like babies because they are babies. Are we just going to call them a big baby and walk away? Or are we going to do something about it? Of course they're stumbling. Of course they're falling. Of course they're rebelling. Their flesh and their spirit of God is at war. How are you going to help? How are you going to help the grouchy Christian? I know we're not talking about anybody in this church, but you know people like this. They say they're Christians, but they're grouchy all the time. I thought I heard an amen back there. kind of sounded grouchy. These seemingly embittered Christian, these worn down people, these sad creatures that call themselves Christ but have no joy, who say, you know, I've had it with you. Should I do as one pastor told me about these a couple of people in his, con in his congregation? He just said, anymore, I just tell them, you wear me out. Is that what we do? You just wear me out. That may be true, but it doesn't help. How about the nitpicky Christian? I'm not saying that's about any of us here, but 
Well, maybe I am. The critiquing Christian. You know, the one who is sure what's wrong, but has no help on how to fix it. You know, the quality control inspector. There's always one. The Bible told me to consider, and I'm considering you, and you're wrong. So there. They might say something to you rather helpful like this. Well, pastor said help, so here it is. Repent. That isn't funny, but it is. What does that mean? How are you helping? How did you show them to repent? How did you help them turn away and turn to God? How about the condescending Christian? You know the condescending Christian, the one we love the most? Well, then no matter what they see us do or whatever we might achieve, they can always somehow turn it around to where we're still the worst horrible sinning Christian they've ever seen. Well, I guess that's a nice try for you. I wouldn't expect much more. I'm just saying. How about the carnal Christian? Are there carnal Christians? Some people say, well, if they're carnal, they're walking by the flesh, they're not in Christ, and that may very well be true, but we don't know that. The whole book of Corinthians was written to carnal Christians. That's exactly what Paul calls them. You're living by the flesh, you're not living by the Spirit. So what does he do? He writes a whole book on how to help. Here's how to do it. Here's how to not be divisive with one another. Here's how to not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Here's how to think of yourself, even concerning the gifts that you have, that love is a higher quality than any gift you might have of the, God, of the Lord God. How about the truly spiritual Christian? You know, the one that's walking close with the Lord would say, well, that, that person has to be easy. That person has to be easy to relate to and love, right? Unless you're any one of those other Christians. who might find yourself convicted of sin just by being around them. That can stir up a fleshly response. What are you looking at? Oh, you're the perfect one over here. I suppose you think the sun rises and sets on you as well. Jesus came to save you and not the rest of us over here. I know nobody here even talks or thinks like that, so I had to watch some movies to find out how you do that. You see, we have some false ideals about love, don't we? What it really means. A lot of times we associate it with reciprocity. That I love as long as you love me back. But we just read the verse about God loving us when we didn't deserve to be because we weren't loving him back. Our false ideals often include things like this. You need to earn my love. Yeah, I'll love you, brother. As soon as you deserve being loved, you scum. No. How about this? If you want to be loved, you have to be lovable. When I look at myself in the mirror, I think, bada boom, bada bing. What could be more lovable than this? I mean, look at this mug. Yeah, well, that's the way that is. <laughs> we need to go to the scriptures. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, that means you didn't choose yourself in, he chose you in. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's positionally holy and beloved by God completely, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Oh, here it is. I hope the seatbelts are still on. Long-suffering, 
bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If you want it to get more pointed than that, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also, so also you must do. Can I have an amen? I love to forgive my brothers and sisters. Woo! Bring them on. Let them go at me. Let the sin pile up. Let the transgression rise. I just am here. Woo! Forgiving you. Forgiving you. Can't remember it. Not even on my mind. I don't even think about infractions. I don't even think about this stuff you do. It's gone. It's like Jesus. Uh-huh. That may work. From the evangelist platform, but that's a lie. You got to work on that. You got to work on that every time you see them until you can't think of it anymore. As soon as it pops in your mind, you say, nope, not going there. And if in our consideration of one another, we see that bitterness come out, then we better step up and say, can I give you a little bit of advice, sister? Can I show you a trick I learned, brother? Whenever I see that person, I pray this little prayer for them. Whenever I see that house that they live in and I think of the infraction, I think of the sin and the unreconciled condition that we're still in, I pray for unity, for the glory of God. I don't let myself feel bad or slighted. I admonish myself for that. Does that help you, brother? Does that help you, sister? That's what I do. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. In that while... We were still sinners. Christ died for us. And then I would turn us to Romans 13. Right before he speaks on Christian liberty, verse 8, we read this in Romans 13. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Of all the laws that were ever written by the hand of God, this one fulfills them all. That's why the Lord Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he looked at them clearly, steadily, and in a sound voice said, the greatest commandment of all is to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second, he said, is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. For in this is the law and the prophets. Everything they said encapsulated into two commands. Love God, love one another. Let no one owe. But when you owe love, you owe a lot. Somebody who's married, please say amen. You owe honor. You owe value. You owe cherishing. You owe your wealth. You owe your life. You owe your body. You owe love. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not Commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now, now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day and not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What are you looking at? What are you looking for? How are you going to help? Let's pray. Forgive us our trespasses, O Lord God. And Lord, may we forgive those who have trespassed against us as you have forgiven us our trespasses. Forgive us, Lord, of an unwillingness to look into our own lives and see what is there and do something about it ourselves to spur ourselves on to love. Lord, forgive us for not looking at our brothers' and sisters' lives, turning blind eyes to them in their state and not helping. For this reason, many of us are weak. Many of us are locked in pride. Forgive us. Let us repent and turn to you, O Lord God, and turn a loving eye on our brothers and sisters an eye of help, an eye of unity, an eye that loves to the sacrifice of our own lives. We ask your help, for we cannot do it in our flesh, but in your spirit and by your word, thy will is done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.